The title of today's sermon is Renewing the Covenant from Nehemiah chapters 8 through 10. Commitment is foundational in any relationship. Just think about two people trying to resolve a conflict between them. Even if only one of them is committed to the relationship, it helps to move towards a resolution, their willingness to listen and not just get their own point of view across, to admit being wrong and to ask for forgiveness. This kind of commitment is what opens the door to greater closeness with each other. The power of making a commitment is what we see in this scripture for today. The main message or the one thing from Nehemiah 8 through 10 is this, commit to God's covenant relationship with us in Christ. Let's talk about how we got to where we are in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah heard the news of the bad condition of Jerusalem and God opened the door for him to go there and get his fellow countrymen to believe in this vision. The families of Judah took up sections of the wall to rebuild. They persisted through threats from their enemies and also from within their own ranks, and they finished the wall in 52 days. So think about this. The temple was done a few generations ago. The city walls were now done, and so the city is now secure and safe to live in. Now, God has to breathe life into the city by establishing hope, homes and work there, especially getting the temple running for the people to make sacrifices, learn the scriptures, and worship God there. Nehemiah 8 through 10 are the crucial activities that create a channel for God's grace and power to breathe life back into God's people at this point. In these chapters, God's people assemble together to listen to God's word. They confess their sin and appeal to God's covenant with them as revealed in the scriptures. And then they agree to make a signed commitment to be consecrated to God. And so this sermon will have three parts according to these three activities we see. First, the assembly in chapter 8. Second, the appeal in chapter 9. And third, the agreement in chapter 10. From these, each of these three activities, I'll also share a faith step to commit to also. Let's go ahead and get started right away. First, let's see Nehemiah 8, the assembly. In this chapter, the people of Judah assembled in Jerusalem under the ministry of the word, reading, teaching, and practicing it. And here's the first specific faith step of committing to God's covenant relationship with us in Christ. Commit to practicing the powerful, ordinary means of grace together. And to wrap our minds around this idea of committing to the practices of ordinary means of grace, I want to first mention a book titled Atomic Habits by James Clare. It explains how to build productive habits into your life in order to get 1% better every day. And the book says that habits compound over time and lead to big gains over a lifetime. And I think that this stumbles upon truth here about how God created human beings. We see in this text that God has provided ordinary routine activities that put us in positions to receive God's grace and that can powerfully compound our faith in him. On the first day of the seventh month in the Jewish calendar, all the people gathered together and unified. The, the text says, as one man at the water gate in Jerusalem. 
they had Ezra the priest read the book of the law to them. And by the way, this is the first time Ezra and Nehemiah are in the narrative together. Ezra stood on a platform accompanied by 13 family leaders of the people and read the book of the law from early morning until midday, somewhere between four to eight hours that day. Now let's read Nehemiah 8, 5 through 8. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and bowed and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shebathai, Hodiah, Maasiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Baliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Amen. We see so many important things here. We see the centrality of God's word here as they assembled together. They spent an amazing amount of time reading through the book of the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy in our Bibles. Also, these readings were broken up by having these 13 other Levites moving around the assembly, teaching what was read. Look at what it says carefully. Ezra and those Levites read the scripture clearly and then gave the sense of what they read. In other words, they gave an exposition of the scriptures. The people heard the word, which helped the people understand who God is, what he did for Israel, and how he wanted them to live. The people of God had hungry hearts to learn the law, and they were united together in doing this. On the second day, they assembled again and continued in hearing the word. And they got to the part in the book of the law, which was Leviticus 23, about observing the feast of booths in the seventh month of the Jewish calendar. And they realized at that moment that this was the time to do it. This was the seventh month. And so they did it. Let's read Nehemiah 8, 16 through 18 now. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven, seven days, and on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Amen. The Feast of Booths was one of the three major holidays for the people of Israel. They were to have solemn assemblies on the first and eighth days, and, th and then they were to celebrate with feasting in those seven days in between. Even though other generations had celebrated this holiday, it wasn't done as meaningfully for generations. And the point of holidays like this was so that, the, so that God's people could see the word that they were reading and reinforce the covenant faithfulness of God. Just imagine this scene with me. Parents going out, cutting branches with their children, 
explaining that explaining that while their ancestors were in the wilderness on their way to the promised land, they had to live in tents like this. Maybe they'd say, God faithfully took care of our people then, just as he will take care of us today. So they rested from their work. They feasted together with family and friends. They listened and learned from the word all day. And then they slept in these tents at night. I think about our family traditions for Christmas. It's the same memories that I have and, and the same feelings that I want our kids to experience and savor as they grow up themselves. Again, the first specific faith step of committing to God's covenant relationship with us in Christ is to commit to practicing the powerful ordinary means of grace together. First, let me explain by ordinary means of grace. Ordinary means of grace are the regular routine things that we do to put ourselves in position to receive and experience God's grace. These activities don't merit favor or earn love from God because being in right standing with God is only accomplished by Jesus' sacrifice as the substitute for our sins and making us perfectly righteous. This salvation is always and forever a gift from God. If God's grace is like a powerful waterfall, ordinary means of grace are the times that we put a glass under that waterfall to catch just a little bit of it and to enjoy its refreshment. As we saw in Nehemiah's generation, a lot of ordinary means of grace revolve around God's word because this is how we learn about who God is and what he's done for his people to save and sustain us and how he wants his people to live. And so this is why the word is central to the church gathered when we assemble together in large groups and small groups. Sunday celebration is important for us as a church because it's when we hear the word as it is preached and taught faithfully. We see the word when we baptize new believers and share the Lord's Supper. It's easy to take these things for granted and go through the motions. But what I want to tell you, church, is that these can be powerful ways that we receive God's grace. They are like atomic habits as well. While we might not always feel the effects profoundly all the time, we have faith that the effects of hearing and seeing the word compound in our lives. And I can testify to this. I've been a disciple of Jesus since I was 15 years old when God saved me. My early years of following Jesus, especially in my university days, were full of emotional, formative learning experiences. But as I get older, my feelings fluctuate less, but God's work in my life are still, is still, if not more, powerful. It is because I have been blessed by 30-some years of being under solid biblical preaching and also striving to study and prepare solid biblical sermons myself. I have learned these are not these are not ways that God loves me more, but rather these are ways that I put myself under that waterfall of God's grace and realize again and again how much God already loves me as I see in the cross. Think about this question for yourself as life application number one. How will I commit to practicing the powerful, ordinary means of grace? 
Friends, do not take for granted or neglect these ordinary means of grace that God provides for our church. Listening to sermons, singing and praying to Jesus together, studying and discussing the Bible in small groups, observing baptism and communion and celebrating holidays together. Let's commit to be present in the life of the church in these ways. Over time, we will see how God powerfully shapes our faith through these things. And especially now that the feelings of the pandemic are still fresh in us, may we also appreciate in greater ways these powerful, ordinary means of grace and commit to practicing them in our personal and our corporate lives. So we've seen the assembly of God's people in chapter 8. Now second, let's see Nehemiah 9, the appeal. In this chapter, the people of Judah appealed to God's covenant and steadfast love as they prayed through their history with God. And here's the second specific faith step of committing to God's covenant relationship with us in Christ. Commit to recalling God's redemption story and our place in it. Let me tell you what I mean by this. Remembering key milestones and relationships in our life stories are important in grasping our identities as people and in seeing God's authorship in our lives. Our family tradition is that for each of our kids' birthdays, my wife and I share their birth stories. We recall all the events that happened, and we always end with the meaning of their names. And it's helpful that there, there are details that we previously forgotten that we remember every year. Our intention for, for, is for each of our kids and us to know that God has written every part of their lives so they can trust and we can trust in him for their present and future. This is what we see in this part of the text. The people of Judah go through their entire history from the beginning until the present moment. Look at chapter 9 in your Bibles now. When you see it in verses 1 through 5, God's people keep gathering around the word, and the Holy Spirit just works powerfully in their hearts. So in the same month as before, on the 24th day now, they all assembled again to read the law. They spent a quarter of the day reading the scripture and another quarter of the day confessing their sins and worshiping God. Their collective prayers recorded here, a recollection of the history of Israel and the story of redemption that God has revealed so far. They started from the very beginning that God created and God runs the world and everything in it. God made a covenant with Abraham, promising that he would make his family into a great nation, becoming the nation of Israel, and that they would inherit a promised land. Then in verses 9 through 21, their prayer recalled that God delivered them out of slavery in Egypt by his mighty hand. In their journey to the promised land, God gave them the book of the law, provided food and water, and led them by a pillar of cloud and fire. Sadly, Israel rebelled against God over and over again, but God did not forsake them ever. In verses 22 through 31, they recalled how Israel conquered the promised land, but they kept falling into this cycle of disobeying God, then being oppressed by their enemies, and then crying out to God and being delivered. This cycle of sin is described in Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 26 through 29. 
Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hands of your enemies who made them suffer. And then in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and heard them from heaven and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you, were, you heard from heaven and many times you delivered them according to your mercies and you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Amen. I want you to notice that their problems always started when they rejected God's word from the law and from the prophets that God sent. It says here that they acted presumptuously, which meant which means that they didn't observe the rules given to them because they thought they knew better. It also says here that they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their necks. They, they simply refused to listen or obey what God said to them. You know, it sounds like when I was a teenager, I just did the opposite of what my parents told me to do because I always thought that I was right and they were wrong. Also, I want you to notice that throughout God's history with Israel, although they were like this, God was constantly and consistently bringing them back to himself. He would keep on delivering them. He would, he, he would keep sending saviors to them from their enemies. And this is God's redemption. This is the story of God's redemption. God made a covenant that was so committed to his people, even though they were so wayward and sinful. God promised to send a savior to save his people from their worst enemies themselves. Again, the second specific faith step of committing to God's covenant relationship with us in Christ is, is to commit to recalling God's redemption story and our place in it. As we recall God's redemption story and our place in it, may we also be cut to the heart regarding our sin, specifically our sin of rejecting God's word in our lives. May I dare say that we also act presumptuously towards God and his words. We think that we know it all and we think that we know it better. So we don't live within the rules and boundaries God, is, uh, uh, God has given to us. Let's just think about how many times we come to a Sunday service and don't really listen carefully or take to heart what the sermon is about. Maybe we heard it before. Maybe we're critiquing the delivery of the preacher. You know, we also often turn a stubborn shoulder or stiffen our necks. We know what God wants us to do, but we just don't do it. I mean, how many times do we talk about truly loving people that are different than us or forgiving someone who has hurt us and we just don't do it? I'm not saying this to, to make you think that I'm better than you. In fact, I'm the most prone to this, I feel like. I find myself taking God's word for granted because I study the Bible and write sermons for a living. I always think I know it all, and I always think I know better. 
No, what I'm saying is that we need to be honest about this and confront this spiritual blindness and deafness as Jesus quoted Isaiah the prophet and said this in Matthew 13, 15. For the hearts of these people are hardened and their ears cannot hear and they've closed their eyes so they cannot see and their ears cannot hear and their hearts cannot understand and they cannot turn to me and let me heal them. I don't know for sure, but I can imagine Jesus saying this with tears in his eyes because he wanted the people to really grasp what they missed out on if they didn't take what he said to heart. We not only see this spiritual blindness and deafness to God and, his, and, and spiritual blindness and deafness to his word in God's redemption story, but we also see God's gracious salvation as well. You see, all the saviors in the Old Testament foreshadowed the one and true savior that God sent in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who breaks the cycle of sin in our lives. He died on the cross to be punished for our sins. His sacrifice was the once and for all sacrifice on the cross. He rose from the dead and thus defeated sin and death, giving all who believe in him new life. Friends, when we believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior, we connect into God's redemption story. For those here who are new to all of this, let me tell you that God's redemption story is clearly not for religious or righteous people, but for people like you and me who are blind and deaf and cannot find God on our own. God's redemption story is that he sent the Savior, Jesus Christ, to save you. For those Christians here, this is a stiff wake-up call to admit that our spiritual blindness and deafness keeps creeping in. May we keep recalling that God has sent the Savior for us too. Think about this question for yourself as life application number two. How will I commit to recalling God's redemption story and my place in it. When our sins are exposed or we're convicted of, our, of, of sin in our hearts, this is great opportunity to pause and recall that Jesus is our Savior. God is not surprised or shocked by our sin. This is part of the story of our lives, and we have to admit it. And then we also speak the message of forgiveness, acceptance, and union with Christ into our souls as well. James 5, uh, 5.16 also says to confess our sins to each other and to pray to each and pray for each other. Ephesians 4.15 says to speak the truth and love to each other, confronting sin and reminding each other of the forgiveness that we have in Christ. Also, recall God's redemption story to non-Christians. The world doesn't need to hear more religious stories. They need to hear God's story about you, that you're sinful and saved by grace, and that Jesus is their Savior too. We have seen the assembly of God's people in chapter 8 and the appeal of God's people in chapter, nine, in chapter 9. Now third, let's see Nehemiah 10, the agreement. In this chapter, the people of Judah agreed to formalize their commitment to Yahweh by to God by putting their seals on a renewed covenant. Here's the third specific faith step of committing to God's covenant relationship with, with us in Christ. 
commit to consecrating ourselves to Christ together as a church. To get us thinking about this last topic, let's talk about the power of commitment in marriage. I admit that when I shared my wedding vows when I got married, I had no idea how hard marriage would be. But I've learned that marriage is not about vowing to have a perfect love, but a committed love. When I'm in the wrong, I tend to get defensive because deep inside, I'm insecure about if Nikki will keep accepting me as an imperfect husband. But what reassures me is that she is committed to me, and therefore, I can own my sins and then grow as a husband. And the result of this kind of commitment, this kind of committed love for the last 15 years now, it's a deeper, purer love than when we first made those vows. And this is the benefit of committing ourselves to Christ as well, as we see here. I, I didn't reach verse 38 from the last chapter, but let's read it because it's really important. Because of all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Amen. Why is this crucial? Well, in light of God and his covenant with them, they responded by also making a covenant with God. But the word for covenant that the people made here isn't the same word that is used for God's covenant usually with his people in the Bible. You see, God's covenant is one of grace. It's infinitely unequal. Uh, it's an infinitely unequal agreement between, a between holy and loving God and sinful and rebellious people. The people's covenant is a totally different word, and it actually means more of a, of a commitment in good faith. It was a commitment trusting in God's covenant with them. Look at chapter 10 in your Bibles now. Notice the long list of names that sealed their covenant in verses 1 through 27. It included Nehemiah, 22 priests, 17 Levites, and 44 chiefs of the people. They sealed that covenant as representatives for the entire community. Now let's read Nehemiah 10, 28 and 29. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his rules and his statutes. Amen. So all the people of Judah committed to consecrate themselves to God, meaning to set apart to God as dedicated to him. Men and women, husbands and wives, sons and daughters. And if you look carefully here, they committed themselves to God's word, which meant that they committed themselves to God himself and his covenant that are revealed in his word. They committed to walk in God's word, meaning that they intended to trust God and they intended to obey him as best as they could in light of the love and grace they had already received over and over from him. They made some very specific commitments here. In verses 30 and 31, they vowed to not become unequally yoked with other people groups and to not do business on the Sabbath. 
in verses 32 through 39, they committed to give to each give one third of a shekel annually to fund the temple. They each committed to bring wood offerings annually for the altar. They committed to give the first fruit of their crops, livestock, and, and other goods to the Levites who worked in the temple. And this sounds this all sounds a bit mundane, especially for the end of the sermon. But the point is what they said in verse 39. We will not neglect the house of our God. Amen. I want to paint the picture of the mentality of a regular person living in the province of Judah at this time. Something like this. I will do my part in this covenant community faithfully. I will consecrate myself and my family so that we won't get mixed up in a pagan lifestyle, worshiping false gods, being involved in sexual immorality, taking advantage of the vulnerable and ignoring the words of God. I will make sure that every year I give my offerings of money and materials, even though I could use it for myself, so that the temple can operate properly and my people can worship the Lord in that temple properly. I'll tithe my wheat harvest, the firstborn from my sheep, and the olive oil that I produce for the Levites who teach me God's law. I know I am not perfect, but God is always ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And in light of his covenant with me, I will commit to consecrate myself to him along with all my people. In this way, I will keep hearing the word and seeing the word at the temple and get reminded of God's grace to me. You know, even though they continue to sin and fail, we see that this was a commitment to keep trusting in God's covenant of grace with them. Again, the, the third specific faith step of committing to God's covenant relationship with us in Christ is to commit to consecrating ourselves to Christ together as a church. The writer of the book of Hebrews connected this principle to the church in the first century who faced all kinds of temptations to compromise and give up following Jesus. This is what it says in Hebrews 10, 23 through 25. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Christians were exhorted to be committed to the gospel message, God's story of redemption through Christ's sacrifice on the cross, to hold on to it, to not let go of it. It wasn't a commitment that I'll be perfect from now on, but it's a commitment that I will keep trusting that Jesus is this committed to me. But this wasn't just to the individual Christian, this message to the Hebrews. It was to the church. They were to collectively think of ways to stay committed to being consecrated to God, to listen to his word, and to act in love and obedience to him. Even though they were tempted to not meet together, they were to keep doing so, to commit to those ordinary, powerful, and corporate means of grace in order to help each other remain committed to Christ. As I meditated on this, I had a flashback to my high school chemistry days, to kinetic theory about how molecules get hot. 
external heat is applied to some molecules and those molecules start bouncing around and those molecules bounce around and hit each other. They hit other molecules close to them and, and get those molecules bouncing around and so on and so forth. And then stuff gets hot. When God's grace heats us up through his word, we start bouncing around and hitting each other and getting each other hot and moving and so on and so forth. And this is what the church does when we commit to consecrate ourselves to Christ and do it together as a church. As a church, we keep practicing those ordinary, powerful means of grace as we gather together in Sunday celebration and life group. As a church, we recall God's redemption story and remind each other that now we are a part of it. So think about this question for yourself as life application three. How will I commit to consecrating myself to Christ together with my church? And I just talked to people here today who are struggling to get back into church after being away for so long. You're not alone. And it's okay to feel this way. I feel some of this hesitancy and anxiety myself. And don't feel like you need to jump back into everything right away. But I'd like to encourage you to take small faith steps in these ways that we've been talking about today and to trust that the Holy Spirit will help you along the way. For some of us, this means to take those steps to explore membership in a local church. It can be our church or some other church, but the important thing is being plugged into one. Or it could be to keep persisting in life groups and Sunday celebrations, slowly experiencing the compounding benefits of maturing within the church family. Amen? Church, let's close with some, some time to pray personally now. Let's pray together.